Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, hardcore dharma, emptiness, love, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Chandra Easton. Chandra Easton is a teacher and translator of Tibetan Buddhism who focuses on the lineage of the 11th century yogini Maching Labdron and Lama Sultram Alioni, founder of the Taramandala Retreat Center. Chandra has taught Buddhism and yoga for 13 years and co-translated the book Sublime Dharma, a compilation of two texts on the great perfection. And now, without further ado, the episode that I call Vajrayana and the Practice of Deity Yoga with Chandra Easton. Chandra, welcome back to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast for your second time on the show. It's great to be back. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, you've been doing some really interesting stuff, and so I just couldn't wait to get you back on the podcast. I've been seeing the stuff you've been doing at the online version of San Francisco Dharma Collective, and also some of the stuff you've been up to at Tara Mandala, which is like your home base temple or whatever mm -hmm. <laughs> you call it. And so I'm so glad to have you here. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Something that we didn't really talk about last time, which I normally have people tell us a little bit about their background, like how they got into this and what they're up to these days in terms of teaching or their practice. It kind of helps us to zero in on where you're coming from, you know? And so I'm curious if I asked you, hey, Chandra, what's your meditation background like? How'd you get into this? <laughs> I think you were like born into it, right? <laughs> what would you say? Well, not quite born into it. My mom became a student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche a few years after I was born. Uh, Although I've been uncovering a little more information that I didn't have because I'm doing some writing, and I've been asking my parents a little bit more about their experience with Buddhism, and it turns out they were students of Maizumi Roshi back in 71, and I was born in 73, and they had invited him up to Santa Barbara, where they were living at the time from L.A., and, and had him do some teachings, and so that was already starting, but I think my dad was more into it philosophically, not so spiritual-minded. My mom was more spiritual-minded. She had gone through a very difficult phase of her life before she met my dad, where she had lost her second child, Michael, mm. actually. Mm. And he was a two-year-old when he died of encephalitis. Oh, wow. So mm. that tossed her into you know the depths of despair. And she started turning towards spiritual teachings to help her out of that. So I was born into that. You know, I feel like I almost absorbed some of that when I was in her womb. Mm -hmm. you know, she was mm -hmm. so careful with me and was a seeker and studied with a Christian mystic named Suzanne, who was a part of the Theosophical Society. And that's my middle name. So that was my mom's first real spiritual teacher was a woman named Suzanne, a nun in the Christian mystical tradition. And then... Wow. 
Yeah, she had been adopted by Madame Blavatsky. She was a Jewish woman from, it was either Russia, I think it was Russia, and then emigrated to the United States and was raised in Ojai at the Theosophical Society the there. Theosophical Society, yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow, which is now the Ojai Foundation. The Ojai yeah. Foundation, that's right. So that's sort of what I was born into. And then later, even after Chogyam Trungpa, my mom became a student of His Holiness the Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, who was the teacher of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I'm sure you know all yes. about that. So he invited the Karmapa to come to the United States. And so that's when my mom and my dad met the Karmapa and then invited him to Santa Barbara. And my father just unearthed some slides he had taken of the Black Crown ceremony that the Karmapa had given at Hope Ranch in Santa Barbara. I was uh, maybe four years old at that time. And that was really the first moment for me where I remember becoming enamored or fascinated with Buddhism, with this Karmapa figure, because he was very charismatic, but I also, as a young being, maybe without a lot of veils, witnessed him dissolving into space. Mm. I don't know. Amazing. If, yeah. So for me, that's when it started. I was like, there's something magical going on behind surface appearances here. And I think it planted a seed in me to have that curiosity that kept going and then kind of came to fruition in high school again through, you know, reading Jung and Hesse and experimenting with psychedelics and all of that fun stuff. So then decided to take Dharma more seriously in my early 20s. Went to India and studied Tibetan language at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives when I was 23 on my own. Just kind of packed up a backpack and <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> had some contacts. And Where is that in India? Yeah, so that is in North India. Himachal Pradesh is the, oh, okay. the state, mm -hmm. the base of the Himalayas, actually. The Indian government gave His Holiness the Dalai Lama land there in McLeod Ganj, which is just a little above Dharamsala when he came into exile. Yeah, so I had heard from a friend that you could study Tibetan language and Dharma there really cheap. His Holiness the Dalai Lama founded the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives back in 19... I believe 71, and uh, you just give donations, and you can take as many classes as you want. And so I went there with just, uh, you know, about 1500 bucks in my savings account, and was able to live for that much for about eight months before I came home, did a little more work, and then went back. So I lived a total of a year there. So I assume you had a teacher while you were there, not a language teacher, but a meditation teacher. So who are you studying with? Well, that's interesting because I went there looking for a teacher. And I didn't really find one apart from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But I didn't obviously have the chance to have one-on-one -on -one <laughs> classes with him mm -hmm. or even small mm -hmm. classes. I would attend the large empowerments and teachings he'd give out of his temple there in McLeod Ganj. And just felt so much profound faith and blessings from even just living in his town. It's like you could feel when he was there and you could feel when he wasn't there. <laughs> wow. And sometimes I'd be shopping. There were only two streets in McLeod Ganj per se. 
One was the clean street and one was the dirty street, by the way. That's how they would name them. It was a joke there. And now I'm sure it looks a lot different. This was back in 1996, 97. And I remember one day I was shopping on one of those streets and suddenly people started running, you know, Tibetans started running. And one of them said, come, come, His Holiness is back. So he'd just gotten back from some trip and uh, was driving up into town. And so we all lined up on the main street there and bowed down. And then he was going to get out of his car at the temple and give a teaching. So literally we're running. <laughs> down wow, there. wow. He was like jogging down to the temple and received spontaneous teachings from His Holiness there. And so many fond memories of the magic around him and around living with the Tibetan refugee community there. It was such an important time in my life. But I was very much alone, too. You know, I'd gone thinking I was going to find my guru, and it was a total delusion, because apart from His Holiness, uh, I didn't really find a teacher who I could ask questions yeah. to. And that was hard for me, but it made me pull on the reserves of the teachings that I did get from a couple of teachers in particular before I left. I had been introduced to the Longchen Yingtig Nundro, which are those preliminary practices often given in the... Dzogchen tradition. And so I was working through this massive set of prayers, right, where you have to do 100,000 recitations of Vajrasattva or a refuge prayer while you're doing 100,000 prostrations. So it's really all consuming. Like if you're living in a monastery and you're doing two hours a day, the nundro, those preliminary practices that I was working on, would take you three years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I had my hands full with that. So I would do that in the morning and then make breakfast and walk to the library and take my language classes and my Dharma classes and then have lunch in a little Tibetan cafe down there at the library. And then I would walk up to Shuksep Anigompa, which is the nunnery, one of the nunneries there and teach English in the afternoon to about 50 nuns and study my Tibetan with them and joke around and have tea and, you know, go home, make dinner, do some studies, do some more practice and go to sleep. It's pretty much my day. I lived in a little farm house, like a barn, converted barn with some other Tibetan refugee nuns and an elder monk. So it was like living in a loosely knit monastic setting. I was actually thinking of becoming a nun <laughs> at the time. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I really, really was disillusioned with samsara for sure. You know, that kind of early 20s mm. awakening was happening with me. I felt like anything was possible, you know, and why not make the best of this life? But then what's funny is when I was studying the monastic vows, you know, of course, there are hundreds of vows you would take if you were to become a fully ordained nun. And when I came across the vow of no dancing, <laughs> I was like, hell no, I'm not going to become a nun if I can't dance. I had grown up dancing and was a dance teacher in my teens. And so, you know, I just realized I didn't need that that structure. I didn't need that, you know, the costume. I didn't need the kind of ornament in order to devote my life to Dharma. So I decided to just, you know, be a lay practitioner as best as I could. I'm sure your children are happy that you, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, like dance so much. <laughs> exactly. Well put. They're very grateful. Yeah. And they've been the ultimate Dharma. Talk about finding my teacher. <laughs> yeah. So the kids... You know, what's funny is I found my teacher when I came home in terms of Alan Wallace became an important mentor for me. I 
returned to UCSB in 97 after living in India for a year. And he had just gotten the lecturing position as the lecturer at UCSB, which had just founded the chair in Tibetan Buddhist Studies in 97, second only to Columbia under Robert Thurman. Yeah, what a great college. UCSB is amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like coming home to paradise with beach and everything there. Yeah. So he was the person I could really, you know, as a Kalyanamitra, you know, that type of teacher mm-hmm. that I had gone across the world to find, and then I found it back home in my hometown. Nice. Yeah. And so now you are at Taramandala, correct? Yes. You know, I'm living in Berkeley, but I'm the assistant spiritual director for Taramandala, which is in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, southwest Colorado, beautiful part of Colorado, just to kind of right up against New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so it's like kind of the southwest feeling there, high desert. And Lama Soltram Alioni founded Taramandala back in the 90s as a place to do deep retreat. Like me, but decades earlier, she had gone to India to study Dharma, but she had actually become a nun for four years. Wow. And then later derobed and had children and so on. But she always dreamed while living in Asia, whether it was Nepal or India or traveling in Tibet, dreamed of creating a place in the West where you could have clean water and not get giardia or, you know, viruses and not be so susceptible to having poor health living in India, which is so hard for a lot of Westerners, and do deep practice. So she was able to raise money and buy 700 acres eventually. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we have, I think, five or six retreat cabins. Some people have done three-year retreats. Uh, One woman even did a five-year retreat. There are many people who are there for months or a year. So we have five of those scattered around the mountainside. Beautiful views. And then we have a temple devoted to the 21 Taras, actually, and residence hall, a dining hall. So over the years, she's really built it. And I started studying with her around 2003, where I was three years into motherhood and really felt like I needed a woman mentor, you know. Someone who'd been through what I'd been through. It's this most challenging transition of my life, becoming mm-hmm. a mother. It's really beautiful, but also talk about selfless service. You know, it's really a deep sacrifice also, especially if you're spiritually minded. Also kind of drinking the Kool-Aid that these traditions give you, which is that family life, the worldly life, even children will just pull you off your spiritual path. Like a lot of Dharma says those types of things, at least within the Tibetan tradition. I'm not as familiar with the sutric traditions, but I know it's there, obviously. Oh, absolutely. The monastic tradition is really hailed as the most important thing and really the way to make full use of your precious human life. So actually, I had to undo a lot of that conditioning and to really learn how to integrate Dharma into my diaper-changing everyday life of the mundane things that normally would seem so bland. Yeah, it's a huge issue, really, the way the traditions are always telling us, for example, something along the lines of, well, if you, you know, as a householder, meditate well and get a lot of merit, you could be lucky and be then reborn as a monk or a nun Hmm. and actually make progress, you know, spiritually. And, you know, since they're working in a reincarnation model, they have this idea that the best way to use your birth would be to 
be a monastic. And if you can't, then you aspire to be reborn as a monastic. And unless you are being a monastic, that's not that inspiring of a vision of how your practice life is meant to unfold. It's so true. I mean, even within, like you say, tantric Buddhism, where like Tibetan Buddhism is more of a tantric, it's Mahayana actually, very rooted in Mahayana, and then there's Tantra as well. But even within the tantric teachings and cultures, where in tantra it's all about transmuting desire, transmuting the senses and the experiences we have being in this body for awakening, even within those traditions, you still have (laughs) teachings that say, but, you know, best would be to go off to a cave and just turn away from samsara. You know, all these prayers say, let me just have no more attachment to my friends and family because eventually they'll just pull me down, you know, back into rebirth again and again. This still has that kind of transcendent messaging that's inherent within the tantric Buddhist stream as well. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's kind of paradoxical that it's there, especially with the Mahasiddhas. The whole idea is that it's anybody, you know, in the world can do it, almost aided by how worldly they are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, let's drink some alcohol and see if you can really hold your awareness <laughs> That's right. to the extreme. Exactly. Live yeah. under a bridge, eat some fish guts, and get drunk or whatever. Exactly, and, yeah. 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 Obviously, nothing's black and white, and everybody has their own inclinations and their own areas of gifts, right? So there's something for everyone in there. But I really had to unlearn that way of thinking, and a part of me even really got was angry at that. You know, like, who's Mm. to say that giving birth and giving your lifeblood to another being isn't a more challenging path than living alone in a cave? I mean, I don't know, because I haven't done the cave yet. (laughs) I'd actually wanted to do that, but instead I had a child. (laughs) That's a different kind of cave. Indeed. We place on a pedestal those who have gone and done deep, you know, long-term retreat, and then kind of belittle those who haven't done that. It's just an interesting thing to feel into personally. Like, how does that live in me, and how do I make peace with that? And so what did Lama Sultram say about that? Well, I think I really, with my studies with her and reading her books, so Women of Wisdom, and then, of course, Feeding Your Demons came later, and then her last book, Wisdom Rising, they all, in a different way, talk about this. But this turning away also from the earth is a way that we've turned away from the feminine and denying the sensual aspects of our existence, whether it's through connection with the earth embracing being in a body, embracing sexual union or desire as a spiritual path is very potent and powerful. And so I learned more intimately through my studies with her and being in the Taramandala Sangha how that can be brought into spiritual pursuit. And it's not other, it's not like a shadow or a different way that's kept over in a dark corner over there. I mean, that's really the main thrust of Lama Tsultrim's vision of elevating, kind of equalizing the feminine voice within these spiritual traditions. Because the teachings are there, you know, it's just about how is it embodied and is it lived? I think historically in patriarchal cultures, there might be lip service given to, oh, the sacred feminine, the great mother, the ultimate truth, Prajnaparamita, that's there, beautiful. But then on the ground, are women really seen as equal? Yeah. 
I'm curious, how did she develop these teachings? Like, was that on her own, or was there someone that was helping her to unpack this side of Tantra? I think she might say that it was really her time studying with Namkai Norbu Rinpoche and then later with Chogyam Trungpa that helped her understand this more deeply. Mm-hmm. But also there came a time when she wanted to found Tara Mandala. And she's told this story, so I feel like it's okay to tell. And it has a resolution at the end. She went to her main teacher at the time, which was Namkai Norbu, who was a very unconventional teacher. I mean, he was the first Tibetan teacher to share Dzogchen in the West, and also yes. Chud. So yes. he was very uh, iconoclastic in that sense, because traditionally you don't share Dzogchen, the great perfection teachings, to people who hadn't had the foundational teachings, like the Nundro practices and foundational sutric and Mahayana teachings. So he was kind of more open source and very unconventional. So she was trained with him in that way of thinking. So when she said to him, I really feel the need for the feminine voice and to bring it out in Tibetan Buddhism. And I'm, I've bought this land and we're founding this center. And I'd like to devote more of the teachings and time to that. And he had said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of, well, don't go too far into that because it's just more dualistic thinking. Wow. You know, women, men, don't get caught in that because it's dualistic. And he told her, don't do that or else we might have to part ways. In fact, there was a bit of a strong command there. And she went into a solitary retreat in her cabin there at Taramandala. She said she was so torn by it that she didn't know what to do. So she decided to go into a long-term retreat. She spent a year in retreat and really meditated and contemplated, is he right? Or am I right? (laughs) You know, what's going on? And by the end of that, she came out really feeling that, you know what, I'm going to have to leave the father's home and follow what I feel is right and do this. And so they had a rupture. And yeah, powerful. It's yeah, very powerful. Yeah. And it was a very big rupture, and the Sangha kind of split. Some people came with her. More people, of course, stayed with him. He was a big teacher, of course, very powerful teacher. And some of the people who were studying with her felt really strongly and supported her in her mission. And what was really sweet is that years later, I got to witness them healing that rupture and talking about what happened because they never really talked about it. And he had said to her, I wish you had come to me to talk to me because I was sad that it caused such a rupture. And she's like, I felt the same thing. I thought I couldn't (laughs) talk to you, right? They should have just talked. But they had a good healing. She actually went down to Australia where he was giving some teachings. She happened to be down there, so she went to visit him. It's just a few years before he passed. And then he came to Taramandala and gave some very beautiful teachings on Medicine Buddha, and really acknowledged what she had done and said that she had done very good. She had done the right thing. So there was healing there. And then he passed away, and she actually was able to go to his funeral in Italy. So it has a happy ending, but it really caused uh, her to branch out and go her own way, which is important. It's part of that archetypal hero's journey. So in a way, she's had to unpack this on her own. 
In a way, she unpacked it on her own, yeah, through her own self-study. That It's all there, right? But right. then she also did go and get her master's in women's studies. So she did do the Western thing, too, which helped her. It just seems archetypally powerful that it's like she had to do it without the men helping her and, in fact, actually actively blocking her. Yes. Do it herself. She's had other hurdles, too. I won't list all of them, but really, she's been a spearhead with this. Mm. You know, my mom was feminist, a very strong feminist. I was raised just being like, it's so unjust how women around the world and throughout history have been treated. This is just wrong, you know? So I grew up with that also very strong passion. What a radical position. I know, not wrong. I know, it's so (laughs) obvious, right? And so even going to India to study Dharma, I was disillusioned with the traditional methods because of just the lack of equality for women. I mean, going to His Holiness the Dalai Lama's teachings you would see the monks all up in the front. And even the little baby monks, you know, the five, six-year-olds up front. And then the nuns always were in the back. It's always been that way. The nuns are second-class citizens. That's right in the Vinaya. It's right in the Vinaya. And that's changing. Finally, His Holiness is changing that, I think, and having each side be more equally distributed. But what was interesting within Tibetan culture Women had a lot of equality in the government and in the home. Of course, there are certain areas that it wasn't equal, and Tibetan culture does have a lot of patriarchy. But there were more women in the Tibetan government in exile than there ever have been, even to this day, in the United States government. And it was so different than what was happening in the religious institutions. Like when I would teach English at the nunnery, it was so clear that they were educated up to a certain point, but not really encouraged to excel in their studies to the point of becoming a teacher, a kempo, even a geshe, because all the teachers in the nunnery were men. The teachers were men. There were no women teachers, except me, who was teaching English. And I'd ask them, what's going on? And they would say, oh, you know, it's okay. They're told that it's ego if they want to pursue their studies or pursue a higher career, that it's egoic. And as women, they shouldn't pursue that. And then also in the sutras, it says that that women should pray to be reborn as a man in their next lifetime because they'll be more likely to achieve enlightenment. It's just crazy. So it's all in there. Although you have Padmasambhava, the great tantric adept who in large part brought Buddhism to Tibet who said that if a man and a woman set off on the path at the same time the woman would achieve liberation but first because women have a more intuitive understanding of the process of awakening but of course you know I'm not trying to say women are better than men (laughs) I'm just trying Uh, to give an example where it's not always taught that that's true it's a good example. And, you know, in my experience, my microscopic experience as a teacher, I would agree. I mean, I think women students have an easier time with a lot of this. Why do you think that is, What's from your perspective? I think Padmasambhava is right. I think there's a kind of openness and intuitive knowing that is more readily available. I don't know if it's part of being in a female body or if it's part of what society does to men's brains, you know, yeah. uh, about kind of getting in the mind and really getting inside the machinery of thought in this really 
sticky, mechanical way, even more and with a lot more egoic weight behind it. You know, not trying to say that women aren't intellectuals or anything like that, but just simply that the way our society teaches it, men, I think, have a lot more identity pounded into that part of them. Mm. But I do see that it's harder, just on average, for men to drop out of kind of the machinery of thought and into the natural mind. Would you agree? I do agree with what you said. I think that there's something there. And my joke lately has been we're just a culture of walking heads, you know. I mean, even women, we're stuck in our heads so much. I, as a teacher, too, I'm sure you hear this, people say, oh, I'm just stuck in my head, you know. <laughs> it's like a condition that we tend to have in this, at least American culture. I don't know about other parts of the world. I have taught in Europe, and it seems to be similar, this overly intellectual way of approaching life and the pursuit of learning can be a trap. And yeah, so if it's true that for some reason women are more kind of spatially open, you know, what is it called, like lantern consciousness versus spotlight consciousness, that can really be helpful (laughs) in the spiritual practice. It's a huge part of what we're trying to develop, right? That's right. I think that's really fascinating. So, you know, good on Padmasambhava for, you know, saying that openly in a time and culture when it probably wasn't that kosher to say such a thing. And his primary lineage holder was Yeshitsogyo. He was her consort for many years. And then he went back to India. He left and she stayed on and continued to teach for decades and was a very important teacher. There's a new book, an autobiography of Yeshe Tsogil, that is a very interesting account of her life. It's always fascinating because, you know, typically if people are doing some kind of Yadam you know, they're going to use something, a figure like a bodhisattva figure or a Buddha figure like Avalokiteshvara or Manjushri or something. But people use Yeshe Tsogyal as a Yidam figure in some of the traditions I've encountered. And this is an actual person, you know, who, who lived like, what, a thousand years ago or whatever, an amazing woman, right? And that's their deity yoga figure. I find that really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And that actually ties in with the 21 Tara tradition that I've studied comes from the Nyingma teachings of Jigme Lingpa that streams all the way back through Longchenpa to Yeshe Tsogyal and Padmasambhava. And there's a sadhana called the Queen of Great Bliss, which is Yeshe Tsogyal. And within that, the inner way you practice that deity yoga or that sadhana is through the 21 taras, different manifestations of the divine feminine in her 21 forms. And she's depicted as a white dancing dakini, you know, like a moonlight white, a brilliant, bright moonlight white. And Yeshitsogyal is the actual historical figure, but she's also understood to be a manifestation of a wisdom dakini ultimate expression of enlightened mind with a feminine flair, you could say, (laughs) (laughs) feminine prism. And so, yes, she is meditated upon as a a wisdom dakini in the form of Yeshe Tsogyal. That's really fascinating to me and just cool. So I think at Taramandala, it's a typical practice to do, of course, chud and also deity yoga. Is that correct? Yeah. And Chud is a form of deity yoga, too. 
you become the blue-black daikini, trema, and many of them, sometimes sangwa yeshe, the red daikini too, but it's an interesting form of deity yoga too, yes. And do you find that, you know, your average Western practitioner rolling into Taramandala can make good use of deity yoga? I think it depends on our disposition. Some people will take to it like a fish to water. Other people, it will take a while. They'll need to be a little, you know, courtship or a little (laughs) flirting or a little dancing around. Like, what is that? Maybe I'll read a little bit or just stay in the distance and watch and see what's going on there. I know for people who are coming out of Christianity or monotheism, but also people coming on the totally opposite spectrum, coming out of Vipassana or Zen, it can feel like, well, why does Buddhism have deities? Like, is that God? And I thought Buddha said, there's no God. <laughs> like, why? And it's a good question. And really, like the whole tantric, high-tech alchemy of deity yoga, which you really see more in the tantric stream, the latter development of Buddhism that absorbed a lot of the more indigenous, you could say, traditions of the Vedas, the Hindu traditions of goddess worship and yoga and mantra and yantra, all of those kind of alchemical practices that you also find in the Hindu tantric traditions infiltrated Buddhism as well. And it's almost like chicken and the egg. Like some people and scholars, historians will say, might have even, Tantra might have even manifested first in Buddhism and then influenced the Vedas, the Vedic tradition, and then that became what we know as Hinduism. Some say it's the opposite. Uh, David White, a very prominent Tantric scholar, says it was actually its own movement that came out of the earth, the fabric of Indian culture, and infiltrated both. But nobody really knows that they're there. I don't know if maybe you have more knowledge than I do on that one, but it's a very interesting movement that came into India and influenced Buddhist practice, and that's where we see deity yoga, where you are reciting mantras and visualizing these archetypal enlightened energies manifest as certain deities, you know, whether it's, like you said, Avalokiteshvara, or Aryatara, the female Buddha of compassion, or Manjushri, or even Medicine Buddha. There's many different types of these deities that we can practice with in order to receive blessings, to purify our perception, to align ourselves with those energies, but then also to have an experience of realizing, oh, that energy out there, that deity, is none other than an expression of the nature of my own mind. And so it's a coming home. It's like a deity yoga is like a pathway home (laughs) to realizing, oh, wait, I'm the deity. (laughs) But what does that mean? You know, what is that? When that's going well, like when someone's really hitting their stride with this deity yoga, or we could say yadam practice, Mm -hmm. what does that look like? So what it looks like is within a sadhana practice, like within a seated practice, sadhana means like spiritual practice, right? Normally, like say if you're coming from vipassana or mindfulness traditions, you would take the object of your meditation, perhaps it would be the breath, which is a very common object of meditation practice within the earlier streams and also within the mid and later streams as well. Although Breath work is less prominent in the Tibetan culture, and I don't really know why that is. They're more strong with visualization and mantra. But all of those, whether it's a visualized object, or a mantra recitation, or breath, or body-based sensation practices, 
can all be used as anchors or objects of your mindfulness practice of shamatha, right? Calm abiding. And so on one level, from the vipassana or the mindfulness practitioner's point of view, you could understand that the deity yoga is another form of shamatha and vipassana. And I can explain why, because it's very interesting. Of course, you start with the breath and grounding into your body and your felt experience of the moment. All of that's very important in deity yoga as well. But then you also use the creative faculty of the mind and imagine the deity above and in front of you, like appearing yet empty like a rainbow in the sky. Like say, for example, we're working with green Tara. You would imagine her like a body of light appearing in the sky in front of you with her gesture, her perhaps she's holding a lotus flower, blooming at her shoulder and so on with the different types of details of the visualization that all have symbolic meaning. And focusing on that is a form of shamatha, of calm abiding, of developing meditative concentration. And then the next phase, so then you could imagine that, you know, after maybe praying for blessings or taking refuge or arousing bodhicitta, any kind of opening prayers or aspirations, she might dissolve into you, blessing you with her enlightened energy. And then you could imagine that you arise as Tara, green in color, a being of light, holding a lotus flower, you know, fully released of the normal neuroses that you carry around with you, you know, feeling into what that might feel like to take your seat on a lotus flower, <laughs> the lotus flower throne, and embody the qualities of this Buddha. And then recite a mantra, that's another form of shamatha too, because you're reciting and you're visualizing like light streaming from the mantra that's circling at your heart space. Isn't the Tara mantra like open source? Yeah, yeah, that one's open source. Om Tare Tutare Ture Swaha. And anyone can practice that. You don't need an empowerment or a lung, like an oral transmission for it. And it's very open source. Yeah. And so you'd be reciting that and visualizing it how? Right. So normally what you do is as Tara, you would imagine that the mantra circles around within what we say is in the heart chakra, like the heart center, right at the center of the sternum, you would imagine an orb of light, a green light if you're green Tara, red light if you're red Tara. <laughs> so imagining an orb of light, you know, not too big, because the, the concentration gets more refined when the imagery is a little bit more refined and smaller. So the orb of light's about the size of, like you could say a golf ball or a small plum, and that's right at the heart center. You could even feel it right now as I describe it. An orb of light. And within that orb of light is a flat moon disk. And atop the moon disk is standing upright her seed syllable, which is tam, T-A-M. And seed syllable is like the bija mantra. It's like the, the magical key that unlocks her energy, like that holds everything within it, like her potentiated, enlightened energy is resonating within the tam. And so in the orb of light at your heart, on the moon disk, 
is this T-A-M. It can be visualized in English or in Tibetan or Sanskrit even if you know it. Standing upright. And then as you recite her mantra, Om Tare Tutare Ture Swaha, you could imagine that the mantra is circling around the tam within the orb of light. And as you recite it, it spins around and around. Some traditions say it's spinning to the left. That's in our tradition. In others, it's spinning to the right. It doesn't really matter because the main thing is that you're imagining that green light or sometimes rainbow light is streaming out in all directions from your heart center, from the mantra. And that light brings healing, liberation, relief from suffering and fear to all beings everywhere. And all of that is like shamatha practice, because you're training the mind to focus. It just gives the mind something to do, a little bit more detailed, (laughs) a lot more detailed than the breath, that's for sure. All that visualization and mantra recitation and all that takes tremendous concentration. Yeah, No doubt. Yeah, and so for some people, that's liberating, because it's like, oh, I need to give my busy mind something to do. Sometimes I feel that creatives are very drawn to this because the light, the color, the shapes, the sound feeds those aspects of ourselves that sometimes really need nourishment. Mm -hmm. And that can be balanced with quiet, non-conceptual, contemplative practices like shamatha without an object or just focusing on the breath. You know, Alan Wallace used to always say, there are many different ways we can meditate. There's kind of two main categories. There's the non-discursive style of meditation, which is more like just bare attention, or you know, maybe you're focusing on the breath and letting thoughts come and go where you're not generating anything or you're trying to let go of the fixation on thoughts, getting non-discursive. But there are also many techniques of discursive meditation where you are using the energy and the creative potential of the mind to cultivate states of realization, states of bliss, realizing emptiness, and so on. Hmm. And so deity yoga is also another way to realize non-self because you're letting go of your normal identification onto your mundane sense of self, like, oh, I'm just Chandra here with these thoughts and these habits and this family and this house. For a time, you get to release that and feel into and take your seat. What would it feel like? Like, fake it till you make it. Like, what would it feel like if I were enlightened right now and I could help others through my prayer and my light sending and receiving light and so on? So, yeah, it's pretty psychedelic, that's for sure. (laughs) Pretty cool. And it's not the only way, you know, I meditate. You know, I also spend plenty of time sky gazing or watching my breath and it's all good you know it's not one or the other it's all good but there's one thing i wanted to say michael if i could just keep going a little bit which is please do what i just described up till now where you're visualizing tata in the space in front and then receiving her blessings and she dissolves into you and then you become tata and recite her mantra and send light to all beings and All of that is called the stage of generation. That's the setup. That's the setup. That's called the kirim. The kirim in Tibetan. It's that first phase of maha yoga, it's called, within the Nyingma school. The anuttara yoga is the way they say it in the later schools. But maha yoga, the great yoga practice. So the kirim is the first part where you're setting it up. 
You're doing stuff. You're generating energy. And then the second part is called Dzokrim, or the completion stage. Dzok, like in Dzokchen, it means complete or perfect. Rim in Tibetan, R-I-M, means stage. So Dzokrim means the completion stage. And what's that? Well, that's what's next, which is after you do the mantra recitation and all that beautiful visualization, then you get to let all of that go and dissolve the whole universe and the Buddhas and the wisdom beings and all of the universe and its inhabitants dissolve into light. And that light dissolves into you as Tara. And then you dissolve into light from the crown of the head and the soles of your feet, simultaneously dissolving, culminating in that orb of light at your heart chakra. Side note is this is like preparation for the moment of death. You know, this is how we're supposed to die. Like <laughs> when, mm-hmm. when we go, we want the mind to rest in the heart chakra. In any case, so then we're doing that. We dissolve into the orb of light at the heart center. And then that dissolves into the moon disk and the mantra, into the tam at the center. And then finally, the tam dissolves from the base all the way to the top. And that dissolves into emptiness. And then you rest in that experience of open, empty awareness. And rest as long as you can. And this is the completion stage because everything is complete within this state where you're just resting in nature of mind, releasing thoughts as they arise, letting go of any need to fix or change anything. You're just really unraveling all of that kind of natural proclivity of the mind Mm -hmm. and training up and letting go and resting in that natural state of the mind, this Dzogchen, right? The nature of mind practice of Dzogchen. But this is Dzogrim, the completion or perfection stage. And so that, my friend, (laughs) is Vipassana or Vipassana in Sanskrit, which is emptiness. It's resting Mm -hmm. in emptiness. The non-solidity of self, other, of just simply resting in a direct experience of emptiness, shunyata. And that is vipassana, or vipassana, depending on what language you're speaking in. Vipassana is the earlier Pali language. Vipassana, with an S-H-Y, is the Sanskrit language. So when you hear teachers from more like Tibetan tradition, tantric Buddhist traditions, you'll hear them use the word vipassana, And that might also have within it more techniques that are more kind of Mahayana, Vajrayana styles. And then, of course, there's the earlier, the Theravada and so on, who say Vipassana, which has its own styles too. Thanks for leading us through that, Chandra. Uh, It's really beautiful practice. I'm curious, like, what sort of level of engagement with that sort of practice is required before you really start noticing its effects. If I was to just guess, it's the kind of thing that you would need to do many hours a day for a long time. But of course, you're teaching this to people for years now. So what do you see? What kind of level of engagement is actually required to bear some fruit with this practice? It depends. I've seen people who've never done this before just do one class, one session, one guided practice and say to me afterwards, that was amazing. And then 
other people who are like, that was interesting, but I'm going to have to give it some more time before I feel like I really understand it. And I just chalk that up for karma, you know? I mean, like, some people perhaps have some natural proclivity for it, perhaps due to other experiences, or also within this life, like, ways of being that have opened them to this type of practice. I don't think it requires a whole lot of kind of prep or foundational training to experience the benefits of it. It also depends on how open people are when they come to it, right? I mean, sometimes we're in a bad mood and we're not going to like anything, (laughs) no matter what it is. Other times, uh, you know, we just kind of get pleasantly surprised, you know, knocked over the head by it. And we're like, wow, that was way more than I ever expected. And I get all sorts of responses from people. And like I said earlier, I think that this is a really good practice for people to do, but also balance it with some nice, good old-fashioned breath awareness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And balance. Sometimes you don't want to do anything when you come to the cushion. You want to just rest. And other times you feel like you need to cultivate certain things, so it's more discursive. So it really depends, Michael. Really what some of the great teachers, like Bokar Rinpoche, who writes a lot about Tara, he says that ultimately what this deity yoga is, is that the ultimate expression of the deity is the nature of your own mind, which I've already said. But what is the quality of the nature of your own mind? It is bliss, And so this can really open us to feeling qualities of bliss, of joy, that are kind of locked up in us, that we don't really know are there. And I get a lot of feedback like that, like a lot of, you know, people's hearts open, their minds get blown, they feel the benefit of that wholesome new kind of rewiring of their brain from the negative habitual thought patterns, or even just kind of normal thought patterns into something a little bit more dynamic and wholesome and uplifting. Because really, that is who we are, right? And our world doesn't mirror that back to us much at all. It's feeding us, you know, whether it's the media or film, right? News, even walking down the street, sometimes we see things that are very challenging or hard or telling us not to really expect that much out of this life, you know, Mm -hmm. apart from the buying and consuming. So I think this is pretty darn cool. And uh, it's really fun to share it. I just have so much fun. Because we're also, like in the teachings I'm giving on the 21 Taras, which are 21 different expressions of enlightened activities of the Great Mother, Tara, uh, we're also exploring real-life women, who have manifested those qualities. So, for example, the third Tara is very similar to the Hindu goddess of Lakshmi. She's like the earth goddess, and her symbol is the wish-fulfilling jewel, Ratna, which is the symbol of the earth. And when I was looking into what women embody the qualities of this third Tara of abundance, of nourishment of the earth, enriching experiences in the world. There were many women, but the one that really stuck out for me was Vandana Shiva, the biodiversity 
advocate. Oh, the one that's saving all the seeds. The one that's saving all the seeds. And the seed is the ultimate wish-fulfilling gem, because one seed gives rise to thousands of seeds, right? And that creates food. Without food, we're nothing. So that has made these Taras come alive for me, and thinking of different people who embody these qualities, and then also, like, how can I embody those qualities? How can I find those, see those, recognize those in my life? So that's been fun. Because part of my work, I've always been interested in like, how do I make Dharma cool and accessible for younger people? <laughs> you know, like instead of drugs and alcohol, can we just get high on meditating for a while? You know, like, <laughs> and so I like being the translator, you know, adapting, updating. How is this relevant? So how is deity yoga relevant? How is deity yoga relevant, Chandra? Based on what I just said, deity yoga helps us to manifest those archetypes within ourselves so that we can go out there and save the world, you know? I mean, like, these Taras and these deities, they're just the ancient form of our Marvel movies, really. <laughs> <laughs> they're superheroes. They're superheroes. They're the ancient yeah. superheroes. So, we get to put on the superhero outfit, you know, and do the mantra and send out all those great healing rays so we pacify you know, negativity and war. And and of course, it doesn't stop there because then hopefully, and what I try to encourage is like 50% is spiritual practice where you're on your seat, you're cultivating those positive states and on your seat, but then you've got to go out and be an activist in some way, whether it's being yes. a school teacher, a doctor, a Dharma teacher, you know, a good partner, whatever it is, bring it into the world and bring these qualities out there so that we can make this world a better place. It's so crucial, especially now. Yeah, I know. So if people want to learn more about your teaching, where do they find that? Well, they can use the good old Guru Google and <laughs> Google my name, Chandra Easton. I have a website. It's called Shunyata Yoga, a little harder to say, dot com. But often I'll just say people, look, just Google my name, Chandra Easton, and then my website, Shunyata Yoga, comes up. And then you've got all my classes there, whether it's classes through Tara Mandala or the SF Dharma Collective, which we both teach at. Yes. And then other venues as well. Like, for example, you know, I'll work with other artists. I'm working with an old friend of mine who's a rhythmic teacher of the frame drum, the ancient art of the frame drum. So she'll do meditative rhythms and I'll do chanting and I I also teach yoga. So I'll teach yoga from time to time in different venues. And I like also singing. I do a lot of chanting, kirtan style, around both Hindu and Buddhist practices. I work with Nina Rao a lot with chanting. She's a wonderful kirtan artist. And we're actually in a girl band. <laughs> and we're developing melodies for all the 21 Tara mantras as uh, practice supports for people. So that'll be forthcoming. Hopefully, you know, within a year or so, we've already recorded our first Tara Mantra and it came out really well. So I'm really excited about that. That just sounds so cool. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Chandra, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. It's always a pleasure, Michael. I love your show. Thank you. Oh, thank you. All right. You have a good one. Okay, you too.
that's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>